You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. You know, I'll say this. I am not a slave to the Google. So it's Advent today. That's what I'm going to say. I, uh, I thought it was really going to come off a little funnier. <laughs> didn't, didn't really, did it? Sorry. Good grief. You're going to need to laugh today, I promise, because it is the only way we're all going to get through this. Okay, so go to Genesis chapter 38. We're starting an Advent series, and the Advent series is called Surprising Grace. And we are going to do this for five weeks, and I... Um, I'll go ahead and tell you a little bit why. So as you look at that, you think, man, that, that I don't know what to think about that graphic. And uh, so it can look creepy uh, a little bit. Or it can, it can, I think, embody what it is that we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks. So I, I saved this bit to the end, but I don't think there's a reason to... Uh, this go around. But what we're doing is we're looking in this uh, topic, Surprising Grace, um, over the next five weeks, the five women that appear in the genealogy of Jesus. And so it's how Matthew's gospel opens up. It's how he introduces who Jesus is as, as the king, as the, uh, you know, the king in the line of David, the, the divine king of the eternal Father and the king of our hearts and minds and lives. And he does this, and in introducing, um, you know, as genealogies typically go, it, there's a little bit of scandal related to every one of the women that appear in Jesus' genealogy. And I think in one hand, it, it, it's meant to comfort us that when Jesus comes you know, on that Christmas morning. One, it wasn't just God just woke up one day. Of course, I don't think God sleeps, so that's weird. But, you know, it, it didn't just come to God one day to say, oh, you know, I think I'll, I think I'll send my son uh, into the world. You know, the Bible tells us that before the foundations of time, so before, um, before he ever created this world, he had already purposed, he had already decreed that his son Jesus would come into the world in the way that he came. And not only that, if you think about it, so as, as God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit and the divine counsel have decreed the, the events of, of, of humanity, um, none of the people that show up in Jesus' genealogy end up being a surprise to him. But they're a surprise to us. Let me say it that way. So that's one of the reasons we're talking about this as surprising grace. That, that there is grace we are going to see in each of these weeks that I hope catches us off guard. I'm, I'm about to preach a passage I've never preached before except for 20 minutes ago. But likely... You haven't heard in a Sunday morning service. 
And I'll tell you why, because it is absolutely scandalous. And so a lot of times you just, you, you preach the story of Jacob and then you preach the story of Joseph and you just get to walk right over this passage. But, but the genealogy of Jesus won't let us do it. And so it, as the first century readers would have read it, they would have known exactly. Uh, you, you hear the word Tamar and all these things come to your mind. So that's where we are this morning. And I'm going to begin that Orson Scott Card's a science fiction writer. And um, so he's most famous probably for a, a novel he wrote called Ender's Game. It was actually the first in, in, a, in a few books. Um, and then there was a movie about it. Maybe you saw the movie. But anyways, the, the, the one that follows, it's called Ender's Shadow. That's the second uh, volume in, the, in, this, um, in that Ender's uh, series, but that's blah, blah, blah. I say all I'd say. I want to read you a quote from, the, from Orson Scott Card, which is, I think, fascinating and sums up for us uh, the, uh, the heart of what it is that we're going to see in Genesis chapter 38. He's recording this conversation, and it's toward about two-thirds of the way into the book, and it says this. It's so fascinating that he writes this. He says, do, do you know why Satan's so angry all the time? It's because whenever he works a particularly clever bit of mischief, God uses it to serve his own righteous purpose. So the guy he's talking to. So, so God uses wicked people as his tools? Well, God gives us freedom to do great evil if we choose. Then he uses his own freedom to create goodness out of that evil for, for that's what he chooses. So you're saying in the long run, God always wins? Yes, I am. And in the short run, though, it can be very uncomfortable. That actually sums up this passage perfectly. It's the passage of Judah and Tamar his daughter-in-law. To tell you about who Judah is before we read a few of these, Judah is the great-grandson of Abraham. He is the grandson of Isaac, and he is the fourth son of Jacob from Leah, the wife who was unloved. Remember that? Jacob married, ended up marrying two sisters. He, his uncle Laban duped him, and it was a different day, but that's where it is, and that's who Judah is. And Judah, being, he actually emerges as the leader of all of his brothers. And just before this passage is the passage about when they sell Joseph into slavery. The brothers wanted to kill him. Judah emerges and says, hey, I got a better idea. Let's not kill him. Let's make money off of him. So they sell him to some Ishmaelite uh, slave traders who end up taking him down to um, Egypt. He's sold to uh, Pharaoh's uh, one, of, one of those in Pharaoh's guard. And then, um, and then what they do is they devise this plan. They take this goat, they cut the goat, they take the blood, put the blood on the coat of many colors, and then they go to their dad, Jacob, and say, hey, your favorite son is dead. And uh, Jacob will begin his weeping and mourning. And, uh, and so that's where we are, Judah's plan. And now I'm going to pick up in Genesis chapter 38, verse 1, and listen to what Moses records here. 
It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. So it's actually the, the guy's name is Shua. His daughter is the daughter of Shua, Bath Shua, which is also another way to say Bathsheba, if you, it's the same spelling. I'm sure that's just a coincidence. All right, so anyways. So then he conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. And then she conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. It was a boy's name back then. And then Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. Right here in verse 1, coming out of Genesis chapter 37, I think what we see is that Judah's on the run. He's left his family and he's trying to put what happened with Joseph behind him. I mean, he'd been the one that advocated, hey, let's don't kill him. Let's make some money off of him. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll sell him and then we'll drench the coat in blood and it's a win-win for us. And, and yet, while he doesn't have any blood on his hands, there is certainly a stain on his conscience, right? And so he's, he, he's running. He, he heads to Adullam to hide. The, uh, Adullam is this, uh, you, you find out later, it, it shows up later again in the Old Testament. Adullam, the caves of Adullam, is a great hiding place. It's where David goes and he hides from Saul. You find out in 1 Samuel. Judah's going to, to hide. He, he's trying to outrun this thing in his life. So he goes to the Canaanites, which he wasn't supposed to keep that company, but he had a friend named Hira uh, who was a Canaanite. So he goes to stay with Hira, trying to build a new life for himself. He, he meets a girl, the daughter of Shua, Bat-Shua, means daughter of prosperity. I mean, how you can't get any better than that. And so he marries her, and he begins to have children, and he's carving a life out for himself. I've left all that behind me. I'm just going to draw a line in the sand here, and I'm just going to move forward. That's the thought. So he has three kids. One's named Ur, one's named Onan, and one's named Sheila. And then time passes. Look at verse 6. And Judah took a, a wife for Ur. So it's been some time. Ur's grown up now. He's of age. He's at least 15, 16 years old. So, so he, he, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. We don't really know anything else about Tamar. She was Canaanite, but takes for his son a Canaanite woman. It says in verse 7, though, but Ur's, uh, Judah's firstborn, was, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. The last time we saw wicked people put to death was in Sodom. And then in verse 8, Judah said to Onan, well, we'll go into your, brother -law's, uh, into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And he, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. 
And, and then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, listen, I, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila grows up, my son grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. The time passes, her comes of age, finds him a wife, Tamar's her name, the Canaanite woman, and he dies as God directed it because he was wicked. And then in verses 8 through 10, you have this deal where uh, uh, Judah is giving um, Onan, the, the second born, to Tamar. Not to Tamar to be you know, lawfully married to Tamar, but it, it was uh, the, the brother-in-law um, uh, uh, writer, I guess is the way to say it. It was, it was the Leverite law. And, and what that means exactly is that if a woman's husband died and she didn't have any children from that husband, it means she, so the, 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 the line of the one who died dies with him, and, and you didn't want that to happen. And so you would give a brother to the wife so that she could conceive and bear a child to continue the brother's line. But the issue is, is that Ur is the oldest. He would have had the birthright which means he would have gotten double the inheritance. But he died. That birthright gets transferred to Onan unless Tamar has a son who wouldn't be Onan's, although it technically is Onan's, but it would be counted in the line of Ur. What Onan is trying to do, it's a birthright issue. He's, he doesn't want to give his birthright away. But, but he's happy... He's happy to engage in the act. I mean, he's happy to use Tamar to gratify himself, but he doesn't want to take any of the responsibility. That's a good thing. I mean, um, I mean, I know, look, that, that's not relevant anymore. As a society, we have way grown past men using women for gratification, but not wanting the responsibility. So that's good. Good on us, right? The next step is supposed to be, and, and by the way, God puts Onan to death for it. So the next step on the line is Sheila. Sheila's uh, not, not old enough yet. And so what what Jacob does is his strategy, or Judah, what his strategy is, is he's going to send Tamar back to her father's house, which I imagine is a pretty far ways away. And, and, and really what he's trying to do is he doesn't want the responsibility. He doesn't want, I mean, she's a widow maker, right? I mean, that's what she does. She makes, she makes dead husbands. And so he doesn't want Sheila to die. He's, he's afraid He's afraid he's going to lose what he has in this deal, so he sends her away because he wants to forget about her. I mean, it's his responsibility, but he's hoping that goes away. Just like he, he ran to the Canaanites to, to outrun the Joseph thing, he now sends her away, you know, out of sight. He wants to get away from her. You know, it's interesting. Judah blames her for the death of his sons. I mean, he, the text as much says that. I mean, that's why he doesn't want to give Sheila to her. 
I mean, he, he's not willing to admit that in his own life and in his own family, listen, there's corruption and there's, there's brokenness and there's sin. He doesn't want to admit that he's probably a terrible father. He doesn't want to admit. He actually comes from a long line of a really messed up, broken family. Instead, what he wants to say is, this woman, that woman's bad news, man. She's bad, she's bad. And if she marries my third son, he'll probably die too, and, and she's the problem. So he sends her away. Listen, one quick note. The, the Bible the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, it makes very clear that God, God is hugely concerned with the welfare of widows. The welfare of orphans and the welfare of widows. He sees, I mean, he, he sees this. In fact, in Psalm 146, it says, The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. He watches over aliens, sustains the fatherless and the widow. In Psalm 68, sing to God, sing, sing praise to his name. A father to the fatherless and a defender of widows. That's what he's called. And what Judah is doing to her is he is depriving her of a right that she has. He's the only one that can give that to her. He's the only one that can give her a, a hope or a fear. I mean, she's a widow. She's a widow twice. I mean, she has no other prospects. Because Judah has another son, she's not free to go marry anybody else. Nobody wants to marry her properly. She's become a burden to her father again. I mean, it's a whole thing. It's what's going on in that culture. It's hard to, hard to fully understand, but she had... Nothing, and all that she had was hope that Judah was going to keep his word. But she realizes, because he's indifferent and because he's selfish, and because he's running from himself, he has a need to blame her for what's happened to his family. And so... In doing so, he sends her away and relegates her to a dead-end life. That's what's happening there. So the events pick up in verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, uh, Shua's daughter, Bat-Shua, died. Well, when, when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hira, it was he and his friend Hira, the, uh, the, the Adulamite. And when Terah was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself in a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she'd not been given to him in marriage. And so when Judah saw her, she thought she was a prostitute. He thought she was a prostitute. For she'd covered her face, and he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law, and she said, Well, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, oh, well, I'll send you a goat from the flock 
And she said, well, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, well, what kind of pledge? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of her widowhood. Scandalous. Judah's wife dies. He's comforted. He heads to the sheep shearing festival with his friend Hira. And what they would say in the day is what happens at the sheep shearing festival stays at the sheep shearing festival. It was a big drunken party that included uh, worship to the Canaanite gods, facilitated by cultic prostitutes. You know, at, at this point, when you read this, the, the, the reader, you, you as the reader, me as the reader, we actually find ourselves more, far more concerned with Judah than Judah is with himself, aren't we? Like, well, wait a minute. Jude, Judah, you, you've had three sons. Two of them have died because they're wicked. You, you got one son, Sheila. You can't really marry him off until he has fulfilled the responsibility to Tamar. Judah, you don't have any heirs. Judah, your life hangs in the balance. I mean, you, your future, your descendants, your name. I mean, it, you're one of God's people, man, and you don't have anything. We're far more concerned than Judah seems to be. I mean, Judah, he's just running from his conscience and he's just trying to put his responsibilities out of his mind. And he, he just went to start a new life. I mean, he just, he just, he's, he just went to try to do better. Well, in verse 14, Tamar is going to um, devise a strategy. D- Judah might have been trying to forget about her, but listen, she hadn't forgotten anything. And so what she's going to do is she takes matters into her own hand. Judah's third son was of age. There was no intention of fulfilling that responsibility. And so she sets out a plan to deceive him. You know, deception has a long history in Judah's family. His great-grandfather Abraham deceived a pharaoh in Genesis chapter 12 and then turns around and deceives a king in Genesis 20 by saying on both occasions his wife was his sister so that he would not be killed. In fact, when he goes to that king, King Abimelech, after all that's discovered, and he's going to make a covenant with him, King Abimelech, the pagan King Abimelech from Gerar, says to Abraham, you have to, before we do this, you have to swear to me that you will not deal with me falsely. And do you know why you make people swear that they won't deal falsely? Because they're liars. That's his great-grandfather. His grandfather, Isaac, well, he, um, he followed in his... Father's footsteps. I mean, he's not creative at all. 
he goes and finds another king, Abimelech, and lies to that king that says, let's see, I've heard this before. My, my wife's my sister. Well, and he gives birth to two sons. One of them is named Jacob. He's the heel grabber. You know what his name means? Deceiver. He, he's the one that, that deceived his dad. He's the one that lied to his dad about who he was when he was blind so that he could get the blessing. Now, the birthright was going to be his, but he, instead of waiting on God's sake, he goes and he just steals the birthright. And that, so the brother thing was strained for a while. He gets bested by his father-in-law Laban, though, when he goes up to marry Rachel, and he ends up with Leah and, and Rachel, which that's, a, that's an awkward reception, right? You know? So deception shouldn't surprise us. Judah himself had deceived his father as to the fate of Joseph. It kind of ran in the family. So in the, in the verses 15 through 19, Tamar, what she does, she takes off her widow's clothes, she dresses as a prostitute. There's something about Judah, listen, something about Judah that she knew this would work. And all she has to do is dress up and stand by the side of the road and Judah comes. Judah initiates the conversation. Judah initiates the deal. She knew all about him. So they negotiate the price. He, he leaves his signet, which is his seal, which would have been, you know, like his, his driver's license. His cord and his staff, symbol of, a, of authority, of his power. The event's consummated. Tamar leaves, changes her clothes. The deed is done. But little did Judah know, he left more than his seal and his cord and his staff. He left her with a child. So in verses 20 to 23, listen to what it says. When Judah sent the young goat, this is what they negotiated. I'm going to give you a goat. I don't have a goat, so I'll leave this stuff, and then, and then we'll trade later. So he goes to try to send the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, but he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, well, where's the colt prostitute who was at Aniam on the roadside? And they said no cold prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and said, Oh, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cold prostitute's been there. And then Judah replied, Well, let, let her just keep things as her own and, and, because we'll be laughed at. And see, I sent this goat and, and you didn't find her. I, I mean, I did all I could. Maybe it'll just go away. Running from his conscience running from his responsibility, running from his guilt. This is Judah. The literary presence of the goat in this whole story reminds us of Judah's plan with Joseph. You know, kill the goat, cover the robe in blood, tell his dad his son is dead. We're supposed to remember that. And then the pinnacle of the story begins in verse 24. Look at what it says. And after three months, or about three months later, Judah was told, 
Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, well, bring her out and let her be burned. Let's just burn her alive. That would have solved one of his problems. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I'm pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she's more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. Tamar's pregnant. Judah wants to burn her alive for her immorality. And then Tamar unveils the identity of the father. And Judah is caught dead in his tracks. It's like all of his life that he'd been running from catches up to him in this moment. And his confession is this. Stop. Stop everything here. She is more righteous than I am. Oh, oh listen, we'll talk about it for, for, for a second here. He, he's not saying about her that, look, she's innocent. I'm not innocent. He's not saying, look, she's, she's perfectly not guilty and I'm totally guilty. It's not what he's saying. But he is saying this, as righteousness goes... Her sexual sin, her deception, her, what she did, that pales in comparison to the sin I'm guilty for. You know, the, the text here, the, the scripture, the way it's written, it, it certainly gives us the details, but it doesn't cast any judgment on Tamar. In, in fact, what we find out later in Tamar is that she becomes part of a blessing that women will give to young mothers. Because in Ruth, what you hear is, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. It's a blessing. Her name forever will be associated with a blessing. It's scandalous. We can't judge her by today's standard. We, we can't... Listen, she had the right to a child by the nearest kin, by the nearest kinsman, redeemer. She had that right. Her husband had died. So she played on the vice of Judah to bear her child, her children. Her deception worked, but it worked because of who Judah was. What he says to her when he says um, she's more righteous than I, the, the word is the word um, sadak in the Hebrew. It means righteousness. It means justice. It's, it's what a judge would have used if he was... You know, he's making a, a, a declaration. He's, he's uh, judging the outcome of something. And so the evidence gets sent to Judah, and he renders a verdict, and the verdict is Sadak. It's, it's, it's righteous. It, it, notice, it's not that she is, but she's more than he is. 
See, I think this is where Judas stops running. This is where he comes face to face with God. The jealousy of his brother, the anger against his father, the fear of losing what was his, all of it catches up to him in this, in this moment. And think about this. Of all the people in the world, on the planet, on planet Earth in this day, it was Judah and his family that knew more about God than anybody else. After all, he is the God of Abraham and Isaac. and Je He's the God of those he would have spent Thanksgiving with. And yet we do not see him consult God or speak of God's righteousness until this point. He had been running from his conscience. He had been running from his responsibility. He had been running from his guilt. And now it has all caught up with him. And all he can do is say, you're, you're right. His failure as a son, his failure as a brother, his failure as a husband and a father and a father-in-law. He comes face to face with it. And, I, and I'll tell you what this is. This is repentance. Judah will be changed after this. I'll show you where. So repentance is this Greek word. It comes from the, from the meaning to, you know, to change one's mind. It is, when it's applied biblically, it's not that you're you know, changing your ways or else. It's not your ways end up changing, but it means this. It's changing your mind. It means coming and recognizing that God is God and you see yourself clearly. You see God clearly and you see you clearly and you realize you don't get a say in what's right or wrong. It is his righteousness, his perfection, his standard. And you're left with having to recognize God's authority. And repentance is telling him so. You're God and I am not. And you are holy and righteous and I am utterly sinful. full of shame and brokenness. And it matters not who my grandfather was, my great-grandfather, my dad. It doesn't matter that my dad's name was deceiver. I'm a deceiver all on my own. Doesn't matter. It's going to God, knowing who you are, who God is, what you've done or haven't done, and then going and agreeing with God about his assessment. Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you, you will not despise. Jesus will say in Matthew 9, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. 
People who spend their life running and trying to outrun their conscience or their guilt or their responsibilities or their shame or their brokenness are people who are unwilling to say, you know what, I, I just got to stop right here and say, I can't run anymore. I am broken and sick and sinful and I need healing. I need saving. Remember a few years ago when Tiger Woods' life came off the rails? It was, so, it was shocking. It really was. We've been sort of inundated with that since then, and so we're, we're, uh, we're more numb to it when we hear it, although it still shocks us here and there. But, but Tiger Woods, I mean, he was the greatest golfer that had ever lived, and his life came off the rails in the most public way. And I don't know if you remember this, and I actually do remember it. I was watching the news for whatever reason, and I don't typically watch the news or that time or whatever, but I happened to see it, and it was, it was Britt Hume commenting on Tiger Woods and then kind of speaking to Tiger Woods. And I don't know if you remember this. Here's what he said. Tiger Woods will recover as a golfer. Whether he can recover as a person, I think, is a very open question. The, the Tiger Woods that emerges once the news value dies out of the scandal, the extent to which he can recover seems to me dependent on his faith. He's said to be a Buddhist, and I don't think that faith offers the kind of forgiveness and redemption that is offered by the Christian faith. So my message to Tiger would be, Tiger, turn to the Christian faith. and You can make a total recovery. Be a great example to the world. You need, Tiger, what you need, you don't need a PR manager, that's not what you, you need. Forgiveness. And redemption. Turn to God and receive it. About 300 years before Brit Hume's words, the Puritans had a prayer. You can find it in the Valley of Vision on page 26. The prayer says, I've destroyed myself. My nature is defiled. The powers of my soul are degraded. I am vile, miserable, strengthless. Doesn't stop there. But my hope is in thee. If, if ever I am saved, it will be by the goodness, undeserved and astonishing. Not by mercy alone, but by abundant mercy. Not by grace, but by the exceeding Riches of grace. And such thou has revealed, promised, exemplified, and thoughts of peace, not of evil. If, if I'm going to be saved, it is going to be by immeasurable, exceeding, abundant, surprising 
grace. Not anything I can do. I can't fix my life. I can't outrun my life. I, I, I can come to God and agree with Him that I'm broken and sinful and need a Savior. Can't you just hear the relief in Judah? She's more righteous than I am. I know what I've done. Well, the, the children are born. Verses 27 through 30. Look at this. It says, when the time of her labor came, this is Tamar's labor, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put a hand out and the, other, the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first, but then he drew his hand back and behold, his brother came out and she said, well, what a breach you've made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. And afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. There's much to say about this. It's actually fascinating how the birth of these twins are like Jacob and Esau. You know, uh, Esau means uh, red. I mean, he's, he's you know, the, the, the red one, and, and this one had the scarlet... The red team doesn't win, all right? Just telling you. Or, or you could say, you know, this is, it's going to give us this picture, and there's all this fascinating line to, 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 that, that is weaved through the Bible. There's this thread of, hey, listen, it's not the older, it's the younger. It's not how culturally the, the conventions work that God cares about. It's about who He chooses. There's all that in there. There's the whole line of... Like, Judah lost two sons, and he gets two sons back. There's a lot of things to say about it. I, I, I think the most important for us this morning is this. Listen to the names Perez and Zerah. See, often names are given by God's people to commemorate like a, like a moment or, or a significant space in time where the knowledge of God or the comfort of God or the grace of God comes through. This happened to Judah's mom, Leah. I mean, Leah, so she's the older sister. She's unloved. Jacob never wanted to marry her. He loved Rachel and he let everybody know about it. So the narrator opens up at the end of Genesis 29 when he's talking about this, and it's this perspective from heaven because Moses writes, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb. He saw her. And, and so because of that, she, he opens her womb. She has four children. She names those four children related to her experience of comfort with God, the first child is named Reuben, which literally means, see a, a son. The Lord has seen my affliction. Her second son, Simeon, that means because the Lord has heard that I'm unloved. What a great comfort it would have been for her to know that God sees her. Not just sees her, but he, but he knows. He hears then she has a third son named Levi. Levi means to be attached to. I think there's part of it she wanted, desperately wanted to be attached to her husband. What she finds is that she 
She's attached to God. He never let her go. And then she has Judah. Her womb will close after this. This is her fourth son. You know what his name means? Praise the Lord. In the midst of her disappointment, in the midst of her struggle, in the midst of her loneliness, in the midst of being unloved, in the midst of pain, she says, Praise the Lord. He's good. So it shouldn't surprise us that when Judah and Tamar have these twins, that the names mean something. You know what Perez means? It said it in the text, breakthrough. God has broken through into Judah's world, stopped him dead in his tracks, and there's nowhere left to run. You know what Zerah means? The light shines forth. Or maybe you could say the dawn has shone forth. The, the sun has come up in the morning. Chases the shadows away. So that's what happens when we are given the gift of coming to the end of ourselves and left face to face with God. J Judas changed. You find out in a couple of chapters that famine comes, the brothers have to go to Egypt because they don't have any bread and anything, and so they go to Egypt and they end up meeting with Joseph, although they don't know it's Joseph because he, he looks Egyptian now and he's gotten older. But Joseph knows who they are and, and so he... You know, he devises this plan. He's trying to see, man, are their hearts still hard? Are they still wicked? Are they still the same people? And particularly Judah, who, you know, through so many, he's trying to find it out. So, you know, Joseph does the whole thing and he tries to trap him and then he goes away and he cries because he loves his brothers and he comes back. And so he says, well, I'm going to keep the youngest. Benjamin has to stay with me and y'all go back. And if you don't come back and do what you say, I, I, you know, Benjamin's gone. And, and Judah, though, Judah, Steps forward. He says, no, please. Don't take Benjamin. Take me. Our, our dad could not bear to lose. To lose him. Wouldn't handle it, so... You, you take me. All, all the blame, all the, If anything happens, it's on me. You take me. Judas giving his life for his brothers. It's a changed guy. It doesn't make him a great guy. He's not perfect after that, but he's changed. So that's what repentance does. It's not you changing. It's you agreeing with God and you know what? He changes you. You know, it's surprising you get to Matthew's Gospel is your, as I said, Matthew's telling the account of the king, the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, the king of the world, the divine king of God. And so 
here's where he's from, and this is, this is the background, and, and, and yet is so surprised to find in Matthew's genealogy. Listen, you can't hardly read one of those characters in his family without thinking of why scandal has ripped through the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then you get a gal named Rahab, and then you have Ruth, and then you have well, Bathsheba, but she's not named. She's just called the wife of Uriah, and we'll talk about that. And last but not least is the teenage unmarried girl, Mary. And what you see, not just in the women, but in every single name, in every generation of Jesus' family, you see surprising grace. Jesus comes into the world identified with broken people. to redeem them. And in fact, he never sheds that identification. He never lets it go. Revelation chapter 5, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Revelation's the last book. John's caught up in a vision and knows the ends to come and the scrolls need to be opened. And he said, then I saw a right hand of him who was seated on the throne and a scroll written on and, and on the back and, and sealed with seven seals. And, and he knows that's the end. That We've all been waiting for that to be opened. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. John says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scrolls. He can break the seals. Even in heaven, he is described and identified with the brokenness of humanity, and yet he is the Redeemer. So let me ask you this morning, where, where are you? What are you running from? What are you hiding from? What do you hope goes away? You know, the next five weeks, it's the holidays. We just all survived Thanksgiving, and, and then we'll be with our families again, right? And, kind of comforting to read in the Bible that maybe, you, you know, your family's not the most messed up family there ever was. But yet, maybe like Judah, you know, you look back and you go, well, you know, I was really hurt by my family, or I, I was really let down by my dad, or I, or this thing happened to me, or, you know, you begin to look at your past and you've, all, you've spent your entire life blaming where you are and where you're going on, on what happened to you. And that's bad. Listen, that's bad. Or, 
Maybe you just look back and it's not that. It's just a slew of mistakes you've made. Man, here you are and where do you go? And you keep running. You keep trying to... You can stop running. You know, the greatest gift you could receive this season is God's gift of immeasurable, exceedingly abundant, surprising grace.